Well, the Apostle Paul, he had preached the gospel in Galatia. And he had saw much fruit there. And he had started a church. And he had spent time teaching them about what God's word says, about how it applies to what Christ did, and how they should live. And then, as he as was his habit, he moved on to the next place where the gospel needed to be proclaimed. But something happened in the church. Something happened there in Galatia. An idea crept in. This idea, it's an idea that's the same even if the issue around the idea changes from place to place. But the issue for the Galatians was this. Jewish Christians there in the church had begun to tell Gentile believers, those who were not Jewish, who had come to Christ as well, that in order to really belong to the people of God, they had to be circumcised. You remember circumcision, we talked about it back in Genesis chapter 17, right? How it Genesis 17 told us that, that it's this, circumcision is this mark that distinguishes those who are God's people. But the gospel, Paul preached and made clear, he made clear, by the gospel that Paul preached, he made clear what God's word always actually said, that this circumcision of the flesh was always a marker pointing to a true setting apart of God's people that then manifests a true setting apart of their lives always about circumcised hearts. But this idea had crept in. This idea that this thing, which in and of itself wasn't a bad thing, but that this, this issue needed to be added to what Christ had done in order for these people to belong to God's family. Now, I want you to understand, circumcision isn't inherently bad. Paul was circumcised. In fact, in one place we see that he even had Timothy circumcised. But yet, in Galatians, he opposes that being the case for Titus. Why? You see, the problem isn't that anyone was getting rid of Christ's work, per se, They were adding to it. And so we ask ourselves, if, if we're not getting rid of Christ's work, if we're, if we're just adding to it, is that really that bad? Is that really that big of a deal? Paul says in Galatians, people who do that, let them be accursed. And then in chapter 4 of Galatians, and the reason why this comes up in chapter 4 of, of that book, Paul kind of caps all of his, his explanation with this illustration, and it's, and it's from our passage today. He uses our passage today as an illustration. He says that those who were adding circumcision to Christ's work, adding circumcision to the gospel, they are enslaved to the law. He says they are like Ishmael. They're Ishmael's. 
children of slavery. He says that those who trust in God's grace alone, those who have freedom in Christ, they are like Isaac, children of promise, children of the Spirit, born of the Spirit, not of the flesh. See, Ishmael is Abraham's son, but he's Abraham's son of the flesh. Isaac is Abraham's son of the Spirit. And in Romans 9, we find that not all those who are born of Abraham are truly Abraham's children in a spiritual sense, only those like Isaac. You see, the risk of demanding more to secure a place in God's family was that you would not be like sons and daughters anymore. You would not be heirs to Abraham, if you will, but you'd be like slaves with no inheritance. cannot be some particular deed or some particular moral code itself from which the church is formed and by which the church submits, but it must be Christ and his word. And do you understand the difference? You see, when we submit to Christ and his word, along with that comes commands that he has given us. But when we submit merely to commands, we can do that without Christ. Now you'd say, well, of course, that's, that's silly, Cody. Who, who is saying that people need to be circumcised in order to be justified or circumcised in order to, to be part of God's people? That's just not a thing anymore. Well, maybe not circumcision, But our versions of circumcision could be anything that we add beyond God's gracious work to justify us in some way, either explicitly or functionally. Paul says, if you do that, that makes you like Ishmael, not like Isaac. Paul says that is of extreme danger to Christ's church. And it makes me wonder what tempts us to be Ishmael. What steals our joy and our assurance in Christ? What are we promoting that poses a, a spiritual threat to us and to those around us? What are we allowing to distract us from seeing and living in all of God's grace to us? What's that for you? What what perhaps has some other Christian, maybe even a well-intentioned Christian, made that for you? See, this passage at first pass, it may seem harsh to many of us, this, this casting out of Ishmael from Abraham's household. But what I want you to see is that God's actions here are actually protective, and God's actions here are a grace to his people and to the world. Bottom line is this, church, you are not an Ishmael. Don't act like one. Listen, church, I want you to understand, if you are in Christ, you are not an Ishmael. You're not. So don't act like one. Don't act like one.
And we're going to ask three questions this morning. We're going to ask, are you delivered by God's grace? Are you denying God's grace? And are you distinguishing God's grace? So are you delivered by God's grace? This first section of chapter 21, the first kind of scene is the birth of Isaac, right? And the passage opens up with that. Finally, after all this time, after all this waiting, after all of these years, the child of promise is born. And the point that it gets across is this birth is miraculous. Three times in the first two verses, it's attributed to God. Verse three, it builds. Abraham called his name and then it pauses. He who was born to him, he who Sarah bore to him, Isaac. You see, the emphasis is that all that happened here, it all happened like God said it would. And it all happened like God said it would because God did it. Abraham obeyed and he circumcised Isaac. God delivered on his promise. Isaac was born through Sarah, right? Like, uh, God used Abraham and Sarah and the natural functions of what's going on. But the point that is, it is getting across is that God is the one who delivered Isaac. Yes, perhaps Sarah delivered him in a physical way, but truly it's God who delivered him. And verse 6 says, uh, this is Sarah uh, speaking, says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And this is a play on Isaac's name. Remember, Isaac's name is is, is laughter. The form and the context of this word, laughter here, it's a kind of of jubilant laughter. It's the kind of laughter that that you have on on a Christmas morning when you get the thing that you never thought that you would get and you're just so overjoyed, right? Verse seven says, I think this is funny. She says, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Who would have said? God, exactly. God said, didn't he? He told them that. He told Sarah, he made a point to come back to tell Sarah directly, this will happen. And Sarah's like, who said? Who would have said that this would happen? Exactly what God said. And again, the emphasis that nothing in Abraham or Sarah brought this about. It's only by a miraculous birth. It's only by a miracle that this son of promise came to be. And so the first question I want to ask you is this. Are you a child of the spirit or are you a child of the flesh? That's what Galatians 4 talks about. That, that, that Isaac is child that's It's a child of the Spirit, born of the Spirit. God's done something, and and Ishmael is a child of the flesh. It's not, God's not part of that. To put it more simply, I might ask it this way. Are you delivered by God's grace? In order for me to say, you are not an Ishmael, I must first ask the question, are you an Ishmael? Or are you delivered by God's grace? 
Because there are certainly some of us here today who would call ourselves Christians, who would say we're part of the church, but we are actually children of the flesh, not children of promise. And friends, I don't want you to live that way anymore. I don't want you to leave this place a child of the flesh when you could be a child of the promise. I don't want you to leave here with no inheritance when you can have an inheritance in Christ. Isaac, the child of promise, he was delivered. God made it happen. And the, the, alternate, the alternative to God's choosing, it isn't our choosing. The alternative to God's choosing is no children at all. Our being delivered from our old self, enslaved to sin, trying to justify ourselves, it is it's solely a gift and a grace of God. It can happen no other way. Either God chooses it or there are no children, period. We can't make that happen on our own. And listen, because it is solely by God's grace, because it is a miracle, because God promises and he delivers, it brings sheer jubilation. Some of us are like Ishmael. Remember, remember, Ishmael looked the part. My guess is if we had Ishmael and Isaac and Abraham all standing up here right now, we would see the family resemblance, right? Ishmael's even circumcised. He's been a part of Abraham's household. He probably carries Abraham's mannerisms with him, the way that he speaks, the way that he talks, the phrases he says. But Ishmael was Abraham's physical son. He was not a spiritual child of Abraham. And so are you striving to achieve some standing with God according to your works, relying and trusting in yourself rather than God? Are you trying to look the part, the family part on the outside, but in reality, that's not who you are? Perhaps the greatest spiritual risk is settling for mere outward appearance. Because it deceives you into going to hell. Church, you are not an Ishmael. Don't act like one. Others will assume if it's merely a checklist of things to do, that if they do that checklist, your checklist that you give them, they must be okay. And we will unknowingly Send them to hell. This is why Paul's so aggressive about it in his words to the Galatians. But, but listen, there's other consequences. There's another consequence here. Listen, for those of you who are actually Isaacs, children of promise, saved in Christ, if you act like an Ishmael, it will steal your joy. It will steal your joy in Christ. So we turn to scene two. Are you denying God's grace? 
Ishmael, by this time, he's probably 15 years old, okay? So we got a little bit of a, uh, between verse 7 and 8, we've got a little bit of a time jump, a couple of years. Isaac's probably two, three years old when he's weaned. And Abraham, to celebrate, throws a party. And it says that Sarah sees the son of Hagar, Ishmael. Notice, it never uses Ishmael's name in this entire section. And, and, and Ishmael is laughing. He's laughing. There's that word again. He's laughing. But this time it's used in a way that, that, that denotes mocking. In fact, in Galatians 4, the way that Paul translate this, translates this term from Hebrew into Greek is actually to use the term for persecution. Ishmael is persecuting Isaac in the way that he's laughing at him, in the way that he's mocking him. This, word, this term persecute in the Greek, it means to pursue, to put to flight, to chase away. You get the idea. Ishmael is, in what he's doing, is pushing Isaac out of the picture. Now, Ishmael and Hagar, they, they ought to know about the promise of God. They've seen the miraculous nature of Isaac's birth. That would have been self-evident to anyone, right? A 90-year-old woman has a child that's pretty self-evident. Would have been no mystery. They should have given honor, not, not for Isaac's sake himself, but because of the position that God has given him. For the sake of God's promise, they should have honored him. And yet Ishmael is laughing at him. One commentator said this. They, he said, they should have been like Jonathan. You remember Jonathan, the son of Saul? And when God anointed David to be the next king instead of Jonathan, what did Jonathan do? Because God had anointed David, Jonathan swore to protect David. Jonathan was David's best friend and ally. That's what Ishmael should have done. But he didn't. He didn't. Instead, he mocks him. At best, this is disrespectful and dishonoring to God. At worst, it's a challenge that Ishmael is seeking to usurp Isaac's rightful position, Isaac's God-given position. See, Sarah sees the problem, the problem here. Ishmael poses a threat, and she demands for Abraham to get rid of him. And it says Abraham is very displeased. Now, I want you to know, I did a little bit of research. I'm not an expert in Hebrew, but my understanding is that this phrase is an understatement to the max. That when it says very displeased, what it means is Abraham is fired up angry, okay? Like he is over the top. The steam is blowing. He is upset at, the, at the, even the suggestion to get rid of Ishmael. This idea, this suggestion, this demand even of Sarah has caused him extreme emotional pain. This is his son, of course. This is my son. But Ishmael, Ishmael himself isn't the issue. The issue is the danger and the risk to God's plan to the working out of God's grace in the world. It was not whether or not believers were circumcised that mattered in, to the Galatians. It was the fact that, that they demanded 
that it, ought, that it needed to be so in order to be part of God's family that was usurping God's grace. Paul said, no, we can't have that. Let them be accursed. Listen, we as a church, we cannot stand by when those kinds of things are happening and allow it. Eternal significance must trump emotional significance. Most Ishmael issues, I want you to understand, are their emotionally charged issues. Circumcision was a highly meaningful issue for the Jewish Christians. It was a highly sensitive issue in Galatia. It was personal to the core. The very nature of what it is, you know what it is, is an extremely personal thing. It goes down to the very identity of who they were as Jews, right? Listen, whatever our Ishmael issues are, they probably touch either deeply ingrained cultural norms or deeply painful past experiences. And both of those are true for this story, right? Ishmael himself, that child, is a reminder for Sarah of the consequences of past sins. Can you imagine for 15 years, Sarah seeing that boy walking around, knowing, I made a stupid suggestion to my husband, he took that stupid suggestion, and, and now I've got to deal with this. And then how much more amplified that is once she gives birth to Isaac, now for two, three years. It's a constant pain. But, it's also, it also presses into to our cultural norms, right? The value of a firstborn son would perhaps have been the most important cultural norm to Abraham and in his time. Firstborn son is everything. But their emotional pain is not the standard. And I want you to know your emotional pain, it's not the standard you live by, church. It's not. Listen, we, we will say, okay, what I believe, it needs to be conformed to God's word. What I do, yeah, okay, yeah, that should be conformed to God's word and to Christ. But why, for, for some reason, when it comes to our feelings, when it comes to our emotions, we decide those are outside of that. Why do we pretend that our feelings are something else that don't also need to be brought into conformity to Christ? Feelings must, must, must submit to God and his word. God tells Abraham, actually, Actually, bro, listen to Sarah this time. Last time I know she was wrong with this whole thing with Hagar, but, but this time she's right and you need to listen to her. It actually syncs with my plan. 
Abraham's feelings didn't render Sarah's demand wrong. And perhaps we could say, well, I'm not sure, Cody. Sarah's motives, her methods here, they don't seem quite right. And perhaps they're not. It doesn't say. But how I feel about a thing or about a person who says something or does something doesn't matter in comparison to what God says. God can bring the right advice, even from questionable places, even from painful ones. And God reassures Abraham, and this is the grace of God, he reassures Abraham, I'll take care of Ishmael. And listen, in those areas where you have this great, uh, where, where there's some issue that brings some, some great emotional angst to you, some sort of pain, whether because it pushes against some cultural norm or whether it pushes against some painful past experience or, or painful thing in your life, this is what I want you to think about. Do you trust that if you listen to God and obey him, that God will take care of it as he promised he would? Do you trust that? And that was the question for Abraham. That's the question for us there. And here's the irony. Sarah's demand causes Abraham pain right now. But like I said, it's not a fault with Sarah's suggestion right here. The problem is rooted in Abraham's sin. All the way back when he took Hagar to be his wife. Listen, our emotions and our pains and our feelings, they are great at revealing that there is an issue somewhere, but they are terrible at identifying what that issue actually is and what we should do with it. We need something else to help us with that part. And the something else is God's word. So ultimately, Sarah's demand will preserve the line that ends in Jesus a reality that then expands the vision of who God is purposing to save beyond human characteristics, beyond human imagination. We think, well, gosh, this is really harsh for Ishmael that, that Isaac is the heir and Ishmael is not. But in reality, through Isaac, all sorts of people become children of God. So in Galatians 4, he, Paul uses Ishmael and Isaac as this illustration. The Galatians, they had freedom in Christ. They got the gospel and they had faith, but then they allowed these Judaizers, these Jewish Christians to creep in and begin to teach something. It was an opposition to the gospel. They allowed an Ishmael into their understanding and into how they were functioning as a church. And so what should we do about that? Well, Paul quotes Genesis 21 when he tells us what to do about it. He says, cast out the slave woman and his son. We are not children of the slave church. We're children of the free woman. You are not an Ishmael. Don't act like one. Don't act like one. So listen, here's my question for you. 
for the second point, are you allowing Ishmael's to turn your jubilation into disdain? You see, at Isaac, Sarah had jubilation, but at Isaac, Ishmael had disdain. You're allowing that to happen. When we add to God's grace or allow others to do the same, we're actually taking away from it. And it has two consequences. First, it either mutes or blurs what God truly has commanded. God has commanded certain things. And the reason he commands them is because they are good boundaries that keep us away from things that look good initially to us, but are bitter in our stomach. Things that ultimately, in the end, will take away our joy. And it blurs and it mutes what God truly has commanded. That we can enjoy those things that are good freedoms of God's creation that that he intends for us to enjoy. And why sometimes do we begin to think as Christians that God doesn't want us to enjoy things? Listen, church, he does. He's given you things, beautiful things, wonderful things, delightful things, purely for you to enjoy them with a heart of gratitude to God, with thanksgiving to God in a way that honors God. Second thing, the second consequence it does, it has steals the joy from surrendering our lives with a grateful heart to God. Let me explain what I mean. God calls every Christian to lay down some things that are not forbidden to all believers because of how he is uniquely working in their life. God will call you, and we'll talk about this more in a couple of weeks. In fact, there's some some significant parallels between this story with Ishmael and the story of Isaac and Abraham on the mountain. So we're going to talk about this more in a couple of weeks, but I want to briefly touch on it here. There are certain things, some things that God calls some Christians to lay down that he does not universally call every Christian to lay down because of the unique way he is working in their life. And when we make those things into a standard for all believers, we steal the joy away from surrendering those things to Christ willingly. We steal the joy away from other Christians having the opportunity to say, yes, Lord, I will lay that down for your sake in honor of you because you've done so much for me. Like Timothy. I mentioned him earlier. Timothy, who willingly was circumcised. Do you know why? Because Paul and Timothy were going to enter into a city where there were Jews, Jewish unbelievers, and they were going to seek to proclaim the gospel to these Jews who did not know the gospel. And in order to do that, because people would have known that Timothy was Greek and was uncircumcised, he willingly did what he didn't have to do in order to have the opportunity to share the gospel to someone who did not know it. Now, can you imagine... Imagine the joy he felt when that first Jew came to Christ. Imagine how much more significant it was for him who literally sacrificed his own flesh to see it happen, to be a part of it. 
Now let's say that was obligated of him. All that joy evaporates. In fact, it probably doesn't just evaporate. It probably makes him bitter every time he shares the gospel with every single person because I had to do this for you. Instead of I got to do this for Christ. I got to share in Christ's suffering. When we act like Ishmael's, we take what ought to be jubilation and we turn it into mockery of God's promise and disdain for what God does ask us to do. And listen, I want to be clear. I am not saying that sin is okay. I'm not giving us license to go out and do whatever we want. I'm not okay with that. This isn't, I'm saved by grace so I can sin as much as I want. Paul condemns that plenty of times. But when we allow Ishmael's, When we allow Ishmael's, it may seem like we are more holy when in fact we are more sinful. And here's the difficulty. People with Ishmael's, myself included, and this has been true in my life, we end up persecuting Christians who are actually seeking to honor God. Or actually being obedient to what God's called them to do. The last question. Are you distinguishing God's grace? Now all this may leave us wondering, okay, I get it. I get the whole God's promise thing and 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 the, so it had to happen and keep his promise, you know, he wanted to preserve Isaac the heir and Jesus and all of that stuff. I get it, but, but, but is God fair in how he deals with Ishmael and, and Hagar? Is that really fair? Now, now, first off, I want you to understand Hagar and Ishmael aren't so innocent as they seem, right? We, we talked about that. We see that, that in mocking Isaac, they, they, they ought to have treated him with respect. And in mo- mocking Isaac, what they're really doing is they're mocking God. But that's not actually the reason why what, that's not actually the, re, the, the problem with the question, I guess, is what I'm saying. It's only an indicator. You see, the question itself, it's a begging question. It assumes within the question that something unfair happened to Hagar and Ishmael. It assumes that Hagar and Ishmael were owed something, but they weren't owed anything. On their own, apart from God, they don't actually deserve anything. They didn't actually deserve to be a part of Abraham's family for 15 years. They didn't actually belong there. That was grace. That was grace. The only thing they're owed is what God promised, nothing more. And those promises are a kind of grace to them. And God extends that grace, what we call common grace, to the world today. It's not the same as saving grace. I want you to understand that. And this is where this distinguishing piece comes in. It's not the same as saving grace, but it does reveal God's grace. As difficult and as evil as the world is at times, God's common grace is restricting evil right now. 
God is keeping people who don't know him or who do know him from being as evil as they otherwise would be. Let's see how this plays out in our story. You see Hagar and Ishmael, they run out of water. Well, that's, of course, going to happen in a desert wilderness. And Hagar leaves Ishmael under a bush, and it says that she goes a long way off. Uh, Let me not look on him. Remember the last time she was out in the wilderness, pregnant with Ishmael. God, it says, saw her in her trouble. And this is meant, I think, to remind us of that event and ultimately to remind us that she is not trusting God. God made promises to her back then, but she's not trusting them. She assumes the child's going to die when God promised to make him into a great nation. She doesn't believe it. And the irony is that even though she says, let me not look on him, she is obviously within vision of him. Because it says he's a bow shot off. And I don't know, I'm not an expert with a bow and arrow. I haven't shot too many bows and arrows, but you don't tend to shoot them at things you can't see. I'm not sitting here going, okay, I think there's something over there. I can't see it, but I can somehow shoot my bow to it. And so clearly she actually can see him. The thing is, what I think, and I'll explain why, maybe this is a little speculative, so I think is that she doesn't want to hear him. She doesn't want to hear her son. She doesn't want to hear him crying out, thirsty, hungry, tired, hot, sunburned. The reason I think that is because do you remember what Ishmael's name means? God hears. And look what happens in the text. God God hears something, but who does he hear? Does he hear Hagar's cries, or does he hear Ishmael's cries? What does verse 17 say? It says that he listens to Ishmael. He hears Ishmael because he said he would hear Ishmael. And he responds in instruction to Hagar, but it's not Hagar he hears, it's Ishmael. What troubles you, Hagar? God's funny sometimes, right? How often are we troubled unnecessarily by our circumstances because we refuse to believe the promises of God? God's, the irony of God's comment here, what troubles you is the fact that he knows he promised something. What what would possibly trouble you? I told you I would take care of it. says, get up. She looks up. She sees the water. And God continues to protect the boy according to the promise that he made. Now, how how can we see God's common grace in the world? People who may not even believe in God. Well, in Galatians 4, Ishmael, remember, is pictured as a child of the law. The law, it can't save because we can't follow it perfectly. 
But that doesn't make the law bad. The law reflects the way God designed the world and the way in which we best can live in it. And when we see someone acting in accordance to God's design, when we see someone acting in accordance to God's law, even though they're not a Christian, that's good for them and it is a grace on the world. When, God, when, when someone has some sense of morality, even though they have no reason to have it, even though they have no standard that they know or that they attribute to it, and, but they live by it, that's God's common grace working in their life and working in the world. It won't save them eternally, but it can save them from a lot of problems on earth. We've got to distinguish between these two. We can be very thankful for the moral unbeliever. But we must distinguish that from what they really and truly and eternally need, saving grace. On the other hand, just because someone hasn't received God's saving grace doesn't mean that they wouldn't benefit from God's common grace. And so the question I have for you is this, are you promoting God's design and law in the world? This is not a denial of our need to share the gospel. Quite, quite the opposite, the deepest and truest changes will never happen without faith in the gospel. People desperately need to repent and believe, but that shouldn't stop us from encouraging them to lean into the other promises of God that he makes in his word. You see, this idea that, that creeps up in our mind that, well, they aren't a Christian, so I can't call them to do things, or I ought not to call them to do things that God's word commands, that's illogical. If you believe that God created the whole world, and if you believe that this is a better way of living, that his laws are good and good for you and good for people, why would you not encourage every single person to do it? Whether or not they believed in Christ. I wonder, I wonder if we actually believe they're actually good for us. It's the only reasonable explanation. Maybe, maybe you don't believe they're actually good for you. Listen, I understand we, we have to, we still have to drive at, 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 at people's motivations and their reasonings for doing things. We need to speak the gospel into these places and reveal uh, how Christ is the only solid ground that we can stand on and how, and how all of this depends on him and what he's done. But if you love them and if you recognize that God's design designed them and he's designed the world that they live in and he's designed it in a particular way, whether, whether, we, whether they believe that or not, the designer's instructions will be better for them. And so this brings us full circle. I've, I've heard Christians say, and I've even said this myself. Well, even if Jesus really isn't God, living according to the Bible, it's, it's still just a better way to live. And, and, and that's not entirely untrue. It's true that if you don't believe in Jesus, but yet you live according to the Bible in and to whatever degree you do that, it's going to be a better way to live. But the only reason that it is true, the only reason that that is true is because Jesus really is God. He really did design the world. 
He really did love us enough to give us his word and say, do this, don't do that. It's going to go better for you. And he really does keep his promises. Church, you're not an Ishmael. You're not an Ishmael. You're an heir. You're an heir to all of God's promises. Don't act like Ishmael. If you've been holding on to something, something that, that you've added to Christ, even if you know even if you know it doesn't make you right before God and yet you still grasp onto it, if you've allowed it to make you feel like you are more right before God because of that, don't let it have that place. Don't let it turn what would be honoring to God into earning something from God. It doesn't work that way. Don't let it steal the joy and the gratitude of following Jesus. Repent of it today. Let it go. But listen, if you are an Ishmael, and I'm quite certain in a room this size that there are Ishmaels. If you have merely been leaning into God's common grace, merely living a pretty moral life and reaping the benefits of it, don't you understand that one day that life will end and you will reap the benefits there, or rather the consequences. I implore you, do not stop. God may be protecting you in some way here, but don't mistake that for actually being a part of God's family. Don't mistake that for actually having an inheritance in Christ. Don't mistake that for being a child of the Spirit, a child of promise. Don't make that mistake. Don't be an Ishmael. Let me pray.